From New York, this is Democracy Now! seen lots of weapons have been flown into Israel from the US, from Germany, from Australia, from the UK, many of whom likely being used in war crimes against Gaza now. So there are serious questions to be asked about international complicity in Israel's war against Gaza. As the World Health Organization warns, Gaza's largest hospital is turning into a cemetery. We'll look at how the United States and other nations are helping to arm Israel in its assault on Gaza. We'll speak to Anthony Lowenstein, author of The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. We'll also speak to the London-based Palestinian journalist Ahmed al Naouk, co-founder of We Are Not Numbers. An Israeli airstrike killed over 20 members of his family, including his father. We'll also talk to the prize-winning journalist Jasmine Hughes, who was forced to resign from The New York Times magazine after signing an open letter criticizing Israel. We'll also speak to the writer Jamie Lauren Kalis, who's leaving The New York Times as well. When the war broke out, a letter began to circulate amongst journalists asking people to sign on, asking for fair coverage of the war in Gaza from mainstream media publications. For me as a journalist, it was a no-brainer to sign. The only reason to be a journalist is to be in the business of talking about the truth. So shortly after I signed the letter, I realized there was going to be potentially some type of retaliatory action on the half of the Times. And I thought, well, if I can't speak the truth in the job of a journalist, then why be a journalist at all? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees says its operations will grind to a halt if no fuel is allowed into the Gaza Strip by Wednesday. The warning from UNRWA came on a 38th consecutive day of relentless Israeli attacks on the besieged Palestinian territory, with dozens killed and wounded in the latest Israeli strikes on the southern city of Khan Yunus. This despite Israel's order to Gazans to evacuate to what Israeli leaders have called a safe zone in the south. The United Nations says more than 200,000 northern Gaza residents have fled their homes over the past 10 days. This is Abu Shadi al-Hayak, an 80-year-old forced to march south on foot. We have no food or water, and we are displaced from our home. Our building was destroyed with our belongings inside. I'm fleeing with no clothes. We are all without clothes and don't know what to do. What can we do? President Joe Biden called Monday on Israel to scale back its attacks on civilian targets, saying its military should take what he called less intrusive action at Gaza's main medical center, the Al-Shifa Hospital. Biden added, quote, the hospital must be protected. His remarks came after Doctors Without Borders reported Israeli troops fired on medical teams and an ambulance attempting to retrieve injured people from al-Shifa's gates. At least one Israeli sniper fired into the hospital, hitting patients. Others reported they'd been struck by gunfire from low-flying Israeli drones. Israel claims Hamas has a command center below the hospital, but the claim has been denied by hospital officials. Human Rights Watch has called for Israel's attacks on Gaza's hospitals to be investigated 
investigated as war crimes. In February, Biden signed an executive order barring the U.S. from supplying weapons to countries that would likely use them to target civilians. But just last week, the Biden administration approved a $320 million deal to supply Israel with precision-guided bombs. And Biden's asking Congress for a further $14 billion on top of the $3.8 billion in annual U.S. military aid to Israel. The armed wing of Hamas said Monday it's prepared to release up to 70 women and children held hostage in the Gaza Strip in exchange for a five-day ceasefire. In an audio recording, a Hamas spokesperson accused Israel of stalling on implementing the deal. On Monday, family members confirmed the killing of 74-year-old Canadian-Israeli peace activist Vivian Silver in Hamas's attack on Kibbutz Beri, near Gaza. She had been missing since October 7th. Her family had believed she might have been taken hostage. Silver co-founded the Arab Jewish Center for Equality, Empowerment and Cooperation and was a member of Women Wage Peace. In 2017, she joined a march of Israeli and Palestinian women to the shores of the Jordan River to call for an end to Israel's occupation. We must reach a political agreement. We must change the paradigm that we have been taught for seven decades now, where we've been told that only war will bring peace. We don't believe that anymore. It's been proven that it's, no tr it's not true. Israeli military strikes on southern Lebanon killed two people near Israel's border Monday. Separately, an Israeli electric power company employee died from wounds sustained from a Hezbollah missile attack on northern Israel Sunday that injured at least 13 other civilians. Also Monday, several journalists came under artillery fire from Israel, as they reported from the Lebanese border village of Yarun. The attack wounded an Al Jazeera cameraman and damaged equipment. A Lebanese television crew was broadcasting live during the attack. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports 42 media workers have been killed in Israel, Lebanon and the occupied Palestinian territory since October 7th. Most of them were killed by Israeli strikes. The Center for Constitutional Rights has filed a lawsuit against President Biden, accusing him of failing to follow his obligations under international and U.S. law to prevent the genocide in Gaza. The complaint was brought on behalf of Palestinians, including residents of Gaza, who are asking a federal court to block Biden, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from providing further military funding, arms and diplomatic support to Israel. Catherine Gallagher, a senior attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights and one of the lawyers who brought the case, said in a statement, quote, the United States has a clear and binding obligation to prevent, not further, genocide. So far, they failed in both their legal, moral duty and considerable power to end this horror. They must do so, she said. In Washington, D.C., dozens of rabbis were joined by spiritual leaders and hundreds of others for a morning prayer and reading of the Torah in front of the U.S. Capitol Monday, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. After the special shaharit service, rabbis and supporters marched to congressional offices where they met with elected officials. This is Congressmember Cory Bush. We 
are rabbis. We are pastors. We are Congress members. We are surviving family members. We are human beings. And we are bound by our faith to demand a ceasefire now. To demand an end to the violence now. To demand that love and peace and justice and humanity reigns and is at the center of all of our work now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not in a month. Not in a year. Now. Cease fire now. Cease fire now. Cease fire now. Mexico's first openly non-binary magistrate and respected LGBTQ plus rights advocate, Jesus Ociel Baena, has been found dead in their home in the state of Aguas Calientes. Officials said Monday there's an investigation underway into Baena's cause of death. LGBTQ and human rights activists are demanding Mexican authorities investigate this as a possible hate crime, as Baena had received repeated death threats. Thousands of people joined a march and vigil in Mexico City last night demanding justice for Baena. What happens to one of us happens to others. We don't want anyone else to live through that again, and not one more person to lose their life to hate crimes. The U.S. Supreme Court said Monday it's adopted a new code of conduct following a series of high-profile corruption scandals. In April, ProPublica reported Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose lavish gifts and payments from billionaire and conservative activist Harlan Crow. More reporting revealed Justice Neil Gorsuch sold property he co-owned to the head of a major law firm that has since had many cases before the Supreme Court. And the wife of Chief Justice John Roberts was paid over $10 million in commissions as a job recruiter placing lawyers at elite law firms. The Supreme Court's updated 14-page Code of Conduct contains no enforcement mechanism. The anti-corruption group Revolving Door Project blasted it as a, quote, unenforceable public relations document that serves absolutely no purpose other than to permit the media to revert to pretending that our unaccountable and unethical Supreme Court retains legitimacy, unquote. A former attorney for Donald Trump has revealed an aide to the ex-president said in December 2020 that Trump did not plan to leave the White House under any circumstances. On Monday, The Washington Post published video of four defendants who've accepted plea deals in the Georgia election interference case, answering prosecutors' questions as part of cooperation agreements that brought them reduced sentences. This is former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis recounting a conversation with former White House advisor Dan Scavino. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump and everyone understood the boss. Um, that's what we all called him. Um, he said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. Despite his legal woes, President Trump remains the front runner for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nomination. On Sunday, he stoked fresh outrage with these remarks at a Veterans Day rally of his supporters in New Hampshire. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. On Monday, the White House condemned Trump's remarks, comparing them to the language of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. 
In Atlanta, Georgia, police attacked peaceful protesters with tear gas, pepper balls and flashbang grenades Monday as hundreds rallied against the construction of a massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. Over 400 protesters marched toward the sacred Wilani Forest, the proposed site for Cop City, where activists spoke to the crowd, including the parents of environmental defender Manuel Esteban Taran, known as Tortuguita, who was fatally shot by Georgia state troopers in January. And the Argentinian-Mexican philosopher and theologian Enrique Dussel has passed away at the age of 88. His work in decolonizing philosophy and formulating a Latin American liberation theology has grown increasingly influential in recent years. He challenged Eurocentrism's influence, writing, quote, modernity elaborated a myth of its own goodness, rationalized its violence as civilizing, and finally declared itself innocent of the assassination of the other. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The United Nations says more than 200,000 Palestinians living in the northern Gaza Strip have fled their homes over the past 10 days after being forcibly displaced by Israel's massive bombardment. Since October 7th, more than 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced. That's more than three quarters of Gaza's population. Many fear they'll never be allowed to return home. Over 1,500 displaced Palestinians remain at Al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza, which has run out of fuel and has stopped functioning as a hospital. The World Health Organization has warned Al-Shifa has become, quote, nearly a cemetery as dead bodies pile up outside the hospital. Heavy fighting has been reported just outside the hospital doors. Israel claims Hamas has a command center below the hospital, but the claim has been denied by hospital officials. Many Palestinians in Gaza are comparing the recent events to the 1948 Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe, when 700,000 Palestinians were pushed out of their homes and turned into refugees during the creation of the state of Israel. This is 80-year-old Abla Awad. She grew up in a refugee camp in Gaza had been forced from her home as a five-year-old in 1948. Now she's become a refugee again. We came here. We fled from Jabalia camp and came here to escape the bombings. And now we're here. Ants are everywhere. Flies are everywhere. There's no food. It's been a while since I had any bread. I'm hungry and want to eat. They're kneading the dough now. It's the same thing happening again. We were displaced from our home cities and we ended up in Gaza. We used to live in Berej refugee camp, and now it's a second Nakba. What did we do to them? Every few years they bring a new Nakba onto us. I was five years old, and I remember being displaced. Our families carried us along with their bags, and they took us to Gaza. I swear it's the same as what's happening today, just like they displaced us the first time. They are doing so another time. The two situations are alike. I have never seen a war like this. People are being displaced. The words of Abla Awad, an 80-year-old Palestinian woman in Gaza. We go now to London, where we're joined by Ahmed Al-Nauk. He is a Palestinian journalist from Gaza 
who lives now in London, co-founder of We Are Not Numbers. At least 20 members of his family have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, including his father and several siblings. His recent piece for The Nation is headlined, Palestinians Just Want to Be Treated Like Human Beings. Welcome to Democracy Now! Um, we are so sorry for your loss, Ahmed. If you can talk about what happened to your family. Thank you very much, first, for having me. What happened to my family is what happened to uh, another 1,000 Palestinian families. In fact, 1,200 other Palestinian families. And it's what has been going on for the past 75 years. Uh, my family were sleeping in their home. Uh, there was my father, my th three sisters, two brothers, my cousin, and 14 nieces and nephews. They were sleeping in my home in the 22nd of October when Israel bombed my home and killed all of my family members, except for two, actually, except for three. One of them was a kid who, whose name is Malak, uh, 10 years old. She was severely burnt, and then she uh, spent a few days at the hospital, and then she succumbed to her wound. Uh, the rest uh, is my nephew, three years old, and uh, my sister-in-law. She survived, but 21 family members were killed. And this is what's happening in Gaza. This is what ha has been going on for the past 75 years. And only since the 7th of October, more than hundred, more than 1,200 other families suffered the same loss I have suffered right now. And uh, Ahmed, you left Gaza in 2019. Have you been able to return since? And, and, and when was the last time you saw any of your family members? Well, unfortunately, I left Gaza in 2019, but I haven't been able to meet any of my family members ever since. And I was, uh, for the past four years, I have been trying uh, my best to meet with my father, to see my father. He was uh, an old man. He was 75 years old, but he was he looked older than he is. He was very sick. And for the past four years, I have been dying every day a hundred times because I miss my father and I couldn't meet with him because of the borders and the, uh, the, the blockade. Unfortunately, I haven't seen him ever since, uh, ever since I left Gaza. And I, I never met with any of my siblings who I lost uh, ever since I left Gaza. Uh, your reaction to the enormous protests uh, around the world, there was a, a huge one in, in London this Saturday. Uh, what do you hope might come from these uh, mobilizations? Well, actually, uh, London has been protesting for the past uh, four weeks. Every Saturday, London protests, not only London, but also uh, in Edinburgh and in capitals all over the world. People are protesting in, in thousands and in hundreds of thousands. The Saturday that we have seen on uh, the, the protests that we have seen on Saturday in London, uh, people estimate the number between 800,000 to a million people. It's one of the biggest protests in the history of Britain after the protest in the war in, in Iraq in 2000. And three, and uh, these hundreds of thousands of people who protested, every one of them called for one single thing: a ceasefire and ceasefire now. Uh, it gives me um, a heartwarming feeling that that Palestine, that my family, that the, the children in Gaza are not forgotten, that people follow the news, that people care about the Palestinians in Gaza, and people, and most importantly, that people in the West no longer buy uh, the, the main, uh, the mainstream media narrative that seeks to dehumanize and demonize the Palestinian people and to provide a cover for Israelis to commit massacres against the Palestinian people. So it gave me a heartwarming feeling that 
we are not forgotten and people care about us and people will keep protesting against the Israeli occupation. People will keep protesting against this aggression, this onslaught in the Palestinians in Gaza until there is a ceasefire. And I think these protests are doing uh, a great job. Uh, we have seen that the, the, the governments, many of the uh, politicians have changed their tone when it comes to Gaza. We have seen uh, the uh, we have seen the comments from uh, President Macron, which is uh, which is very good, and I think it's a step in the right in the right direction. I think this uh, this con this country is a democracy, and I think people uh, when they protest, I think eventually the government will have to listen to them and pressure Israel to stop its onslaught. On Gaza. Can you talk about the politics of what's happening in London now? I mean, this massive protest, one of the largest Britain has seen in London this weekend, and then the ousting of the foreign secretary, Braverman, um, saying that pro-Palestinian marches are hate marches. Um, uh, so she was thrown out. And David Cameron, the former prime minister, was made the foreign secretary. And then the discussion of Tony Blair being brought back as well. Your response, Ahmed? Well, I think uh, the message that the protesters at London and all over the UK gave to the government is that we do not accept to be slammed. We do not accept to be called uh, hate marches. We do not accept the, the false allegation that people who protest for Palestine are anti-Semitic. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we have seen some comments from uh, politicians, from uh, the, 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 the former uh, Home Secretary, uh, describing these uh, marches as hate marches. Unfortunately, uh, we, the Palestinians and pro-Palestinians and people from all over the UK, now we are talking about the majority of the people who live in the UK are now pro-Palestine, are pro-ceasefire. You could rarely find someone who wants Israel to continue uh, their massacres against the Palestinian people. Unfortunately, the government is not living up to the to its responsibility as a uh, as a democracy. They are not living up to the demands and aspiration of the British people. And I think the British people um, were very generous, very kind. They were very uh, pro justice, and they came from all across uh, the UK uh, on Saturday. The people came from all across the UK. They travelled for hours in order to participate in this protest, uh, and. And their message was that they do not accept these allegations. They do not accept uh, that uh, this protest is a hate march. They come Jewish, Muslims, Christians, atheists, people of LGBTQ, people from all colors, from all faiths came to the UK, came to London on Saturday, and they protested, calling for, uh, for, for a ceasefire. This is actually a love march. And people who came here, they came out of love out of humanity and they came here to say that enough is enough and these people do not accept that their home secretary says that they are uh, hate marches and i believe that uh, the power of people is uh, is is very very uh, people are, are very powerful and their calls are very powerful and i think eventually the government will have to listen to them i think this is a, a right step a step in the in the right direction from the british government to uh, ousting this uh, uh, the the uh, Suella, and uh, I really hope that the next Home Secretary. I really have hope that uh, they will do a better job than uh, the previous one. 
Um, we were just showing video of this massive march, and um, uh, among the signs, there was a large group of Jews who were marching, uh, saying Jews against apartheid, uh, the Jewish star, um, with not in our name. But I wanted to come to the United States and get your response, Ahmed, to what's happening here. President Biden speaking Monday, saying Al-Shifa Hospital must be protected. You know, I uh, have not been reluctant in expressing my concerns what's going on. Um, and it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. Uh, we're in contact and we're with, uh, with the Israelis. Also, there is an effort to uh, uh, take this pause to deal with the release of prisoners. And that's being negotiated as well with the Qataris are engaged. And uh, so I remain somewhat hopeful that the hospital must be protected. The hospital must be protected, President Biden said. Your response, and also previously, uh, to the large Jewish population who is speaking out against what Israel is doing in Gaza and separating um, their condemnation of anti-Semitism from condemnation of the Israeli state. The Jewish people in this country and uh, in, in America actually has been uh, playing a pivotal role in the uh, in, in, in this struggle against the occupation and this struggle against the apartheid uh, and, and and occupation uh, of Palestine. Uh, we in London we have, uh, for example, in, the, in this protest more than a thousand people. Jewish people came in the protest in the Jewish bloc and they protested and their calls were the same calls as everyone in the protest uh, is calling for. The, the, the Jewish people are part of the struggle in the, uh, of the Palestinian liberation uh, movement and they have been doing a great job and actually I believe that one of the most one of the most vocal voices for for Palestine are of Jewish voices. Uh, we have seen many organizations in the U.S. and in the U.K. with Jewish people, Jewish Voice for Peace and Mahmoud and many other uh, organizations here and there are, who are calling, who are fighting day and night for the liberation of the Palestinian people, who are fighting against occupation peacefully and justly. They're not anti-Semitic. They can't be anti-Semitic while they are Jews. But unfortunately, uh, the, the smear campaigns that the, uh, the, the Israeli lobby is doing here is, is fierce. And they do not distinguish between the Jewish people or the Christians or the Muslims. As long as we are uh, pro-Palestine, uh, as long as we are against occupation, then we are anti-Semitic. That's, uh, that's really absurd. But I am very, very, very proud. And all of us are very, very, very proud of the Jewish community with the Jewish community in the U.S. and in the U.K. who uh, challenge the stereotypes, who challenge the Western media and who challenge the um, disinformation and misinformation about what's going on in Palestine and Israel. And they came out and said in one word that they are a pro-justice, uh, pro-peace, and they are with a ceasefire now. As for uh, Biden, he said that Ashifa Hospital should be protected. I really want to believe him, uh, but I don't think that he's genuine in his, uh, in his uh, calls because he is... Uh, he is supporting Israel. He has been aiding Israel with the money, with diplomacy, with uh, with weaponry. He has doubled uh, the the money that he gives to to Israel to bomb us. For example, my family was bombed by an F-16, an American-made uh, airplane. So uh, Biden provides Israel with whatever it needs, with with the weapon, with the cover, with, with whatever it needs. And then they say that Ashifa Hospital should be protected. Unfortunately, Ashifa Hospital is not protected. 
Now, uh, most of the refugees who came to get to the Shifa hospital, or they already left. We have seen videos of piles of bodies in Shifa hospital, and eyewitnesses say that the stray dogs go and eat from the bodies of the Palestinian people because they cannot go and uh, bury these uh, these bodies of the dead people in the Gaza Strip. Unfortunately, I think this uh, uh, this comments from uh, Biden should be. I, w I will only believe these comments if he does something, if he does an action. Uh, but, but, but right now, I do not trust his words. I do not trust his calls. And I believe he is complicit in the war crimes that Israel is committing against the Palestinian people, including the targeting of uh, the hospitals, the Shifa hospital and the other hospitals. They have been targeted, these hospitals, because Israel had the cover and the atmosphere from the U.S. government, from the U.S. military, from the U.S. media, mainstream media, to do what they are doing right now. Yeah, Ahmed, I wanted to ask you, you were mentioning Al-Shifa Hospital in the United States being complicit. The terrible, absolutely terrible images we've seen in the past two days of the uh, the premature infants uh, uh, cut off from their incubators and just uh, all together in a big group surrounded by aluminum foil to protect them. I can't understand why uh, even in the United States still, they, or or in, even in the West, there are still people who don't recognize the enormous uh, war crimes that are being committed here. Your sense of what it will take to to stop this, uh, to to allow at least a ceasefire uh, for uh, uh, in Gaza right now. Well, I don't know what it takes to uh, to uh, to force a ceasefire after everything that we have seen. If after the targeting of civilians, the targeting of hospitals, targeting of schools, targeting of refugees as they are uh, going south, uh, more than fifteen thousand people now already killed, including the uh, two or three thousand people under the rubble. Entire areas have been mass have been wiped out. Neighborhoods have been destroyed, and people are starving. People are literally starving in Gaza. They don't have food. They don't have Water, they don't have medical supplies, they don't have electricity, they don't, ha they don't have internet connection. All of this, a genocide is taking place in Gaza, and we're still seeing some politicians and some governments who refuse to push Israel for a ceasefire. I don't know what does it take to stop all of that. And we have seen what's going on in the hospital, in Shiva Hospital, is a crime. It's a crime against the humanity. I don't think, I don't know how these people are humans, how they feel for their brothers and sisters who allow this massacre to happen in, in Al-Shifa Hospital. And allow me to say this, the Israelis are targeting Al-Shifa Hospital and other hospitals not because there is Hamas base in it. Of course they know that there is no Hamas there. These are public areas and everyone like, they are uh, taped and filmed all the time. There is no Hamas inside Al-Shifa Hospital, but Israel wants to destroy Al-Shifa Hospital in order to force everyone who live north of the, uh, of the valley to go south. Because people are taking refuge in these hospitals, so Israel are bombing these hospitals so that end all so that they end all the uh, shelters uh, for the refugees and that's when they will be forced to move south so the, all these allegations that Hamas members or military bases and a Shifa hospital other hospital is absurd now a country or an army that is willing and capable of killing 5000 Palestinian kids while they were sleeping in their homes, including 14 of my nieces and nephews, is capable of lying and saying that there is Hamas in the hospital. This is a lie and the world should know. The world should know better. Now we have social media. We see the truth as it is. And I do not 
give any excuse for anyone who believes or buys the Israeli narrative uh, about what's going on in this conflict because this army is a killer, is a murderer, and they are, of course, capable of lying as they have lied for many, many, many years before. Ahmed Al-Nauk, I want to thank you for being with us, co-founder of We Are Not Numbers. At least 20 members of his family have been killed in Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attack, including his father and several siblings. His recent piece for the nation is headlined, Palestinians just want to be treated like human beings. We'll link to it at democracynow.org. Next up, we speak with two journalists, the award-winning Jasmine Hughes, forced to resign from The New York Times magazine after signing an open letter criticizing Israel. We also speak to the writer Jamie Lauren Kalis, who's leaving The New York Times as well. Back in 30 seconds. See, I hope, I hope that it's going to be all right, but what a hell of a night. Humanity is a privilege. We can't give in. When they build walls, we'll build bridges. This is resistance. We're resilient. And they spread heat. We shine brilliant. Marched by the millions. Do they hear the children? We feel ourselves at a distance. Open up the jails and the overcrowded cells. When we oppress anyone. We oppress ourselves. Greatest gift I ever learned. Wednesday morning by Macklemore, who addressed the pro ceasefire rally in Washington, D.C. last week. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at how Israel's bombardment of Gaza is creating turmoil in newsrooms. The New York Times Magazine's award-winning writer Jasmine Hughes was recently forced to resign after signing an open letter condemning Israel's siege on Gaza. In an email to the staff, the magazine editor, Jake Silverstein, wrote, While I respect that she has strong convictions, this was a clear violation of the Times' policy on public protest. This policy, which I fully support, is an important part of our commitment to independence, he said. Jasmine Hughes is an acclaimed journalist who won a National Magazine Award earlier this year for her profiles of Viola Davis and Whoopi Goldberg in The New York Times. She also worked on The Times' prize-winning 1619 project about the role of slavery in the United States. Her last piece was about um, Danny DeVito and his daughter Lucy starring in a Broadway play. Meanwhile, a contributor at The New York Times magazine, who signed the same letter criticizing Israel, Jamie Lauren Kalis, has announced he'll no longer write for the publication. He's a transgender journalist who describes himself as a, quote, religiously observant Jew. In a message on social media, he said it was a, quote, personal decision about what kind of work I want to be able to do. The letter they both signed read in part, quote, we stand in opposition to the silencing of dissent and to racist and revisionist media cycles further perpetuated by Israel's attempts to bar reporting in Gaza, where journalists have been both denied entry and targeted by Israeli forces. We condemn those in our industries who continue to enable apartheid and genocide. We cannot write a free Palestine into existence. But together, we must do all we possibly can to reject narratives that soothe Western complicity in ethnic cleansing, they wrote. Jasmine Hughes and Jamie Lauren Kalis join us together in their first broadcast interview. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Jasmine, let's begin with you. Talk about your decision that led to your forced resignation from The New York Times to sign the letter. Why did you choose to sign on? 
I signed on to the letter as mostly a conscientious person. I felt so overwhelmed by the media that I was seeing, the reports that I was hearing. And I don't purport to be an expert on the situation by any means. Admittedly, I'm pretty belated to the entire approach, and I wanted to personally hold myself accountable. But what really stuck out to me about the letters that we were—the letter was addressed in part to other news organizations, other journalists that spoke about uh, workplace violations, harassment that people were facing, that spoke about the ways in which the conflict is being covered. And I considered it a conversation within the industry that I wanted to be a part of. And could you talk a little about what what your concerns were about how it was being covered by The Times? Well, I I don't want to speak about particular ways that it was covered by the New York Times, but just in general, I felt as if I wanted to be part of this conversation that really held the industry itself to a particular standard. And also, I felt personally implicated as a taxpaying American, and I wanted to hold myself accountable for these sorts of things. With regard to the Times' coverage, I um, actually, no, I—, I didn't have anything particular about the Times' coverage. I just wanted to speak to the matter at large. And, and this whole issue, obviously, of uh, uh, objectivity uh, within uh, uh, mainstream or uh, commercial journalism, your, your sense of how it's been applied o- over the years? I think that objectivity is a wonderful, beautiful project for a world that does not exist, right? And I think that— um, I guess specifically within the Times, but in mainstream media at large, that the recent, like, diversification of newsrooms has been a great boon, I think, to both coverage and to people's, like, egos. But what happens when we suddenly have, like, an influx of people with different identities, different experiences, and different wants in a newsroom? I signed the pay—I signed the letter, rather, as an employee of the New York Times, but as a black person, as a queer person, as a woman. And, you know, all these identities have— all of those identities or all of the communities thereof have been awarded their rights by agitation, right, by protest. And I, as a person at the at the uh, core of all these identities, wanted to amplify that effort. And um, I think that—I'm sorry, that's it. Well, Jasmine, you've talked about the awards you've won for your writing, like the— a National Magazine Award, uh, being from a very subjective point of view, and that that's your power, that's what you win the awards for. Can you amplify on that? Sure. I um, have won—I had won three awards during my tenure as a writer for The New York Times Sunday Magazine, one for being under 30, which I am no longer, one for uh, writing a story about coming out as a lesbian, and one for writing these stories on— like stated, on Viola Davis and Whoopi Goldberg. And all of these stories were predicated, in some part, on my identity. I think the biggest difference, or I guess the biggest note that I want to make, that I I signed that letter as a magazine journalist, right? I wasn't working in the newsroom. I wasn't doing the sort of stories where you take the sort of, like, distant, authoritative stance where— 
you are presenting unbiased and unfiltered facts. Every story that I've written from the New York Times has been, like, through my very real identity and experiences. And the fact that I've written so many stories with the word we, right, that can refer to any group of people, any sort of community that I'm a part of, already puts me in a situation where I didn't purport to try to uh, write or continue the, the sort of... Um, the standards of the newsroom, of the actual New York Times. I think that uh, I was writing, or all the stories I wrote had a particular voice, and I think that voice translated onto the letter because it's me, and that's what makes sense. Well, let's bring Jamie Lauren Kalis into this conversation. You also resigned from the New York Times magazine. Um, you're a transgender Jewish writer, a self-described observant Jew. Um, you were a New York Times magazine contributor. Talk about your decision. Yeah, so first and foremost, I signed the letter as a person. I feel like growing up as a Jew in America, you're asked all the time, what would people do if there was another Holocaust? And for me, it was just really important to say, this is the time when you're supposed to speak up. Like, this is the moment that you've been hypothetically asked about your entire life. So journalism aside, uh, I signed it as a person, and I think it's the right thing to do. And I wouldn't support an ethnostate anywhere else in the world for any other group, and I don't support it for my own people. So that was first and foremost why I signed the letter. The secondary question of sort of why did I sign it as a journalist has to do a little bit about with questions about sort of what do we expect of contingent labor. I'm a, Jasmine's a staffer, but I'm a contributing writer for the magazine, which means I don't have benefits. I don't have any kind of protections. So that's how most of the journalism in our industry is currently being produced in this moment by contingent laborers. And I think there's this bigger question of like, if an institution is not willing to give you a job, then what do you owe them, right? And I think like, I'm not, as someone that doesn't have job security and isn't protected and doesn't have access to the labor rights that a union grants, I think it's like incumbent upon me to be owning my own platform as much as possible, right? Uh, I owe nothing to the institution of the Times if the Times gives nothing to me. And I think that, to me, uh, the commitment to signing the letter beyond the fact that I just think it's the correct statement to make, um, it's a little bit of a, a protest of this idea that just because you're a person who produces news, and like Jasmine, like, I cover celebrities, you know, this is not my my main topic, but it's the idea that the magazine or the Times as a whole would have some hold on my speech just seemed ludicrous to me. So in some way, uh, it was a small amount of protest over the labor conditions in the industry at large. So in other words, what you're saying is the Times holds you to the code of conduct of an employee, but then does not uh, provide you the the benefits or the protections of an employee. Uh, what what did the editors say to you once the letter had come out? I mean, it's a little less clear than that, right? Because like there, there's not formal statements saying what contributors and what 1099 workers can or cannot say, right? And when you go say, hey, where's the line? Like, what, what is political speech and what is a statement of fact? Like, it's very hard to get a clear answer on that. So I signed the letter. This was the second letter I signed. I signed an earlier letter regarding the, the paper's coverage of trans issues, and I was reprimanded for that. And they said, well, you know, uh, you can't sign this letter because it singled out the work of other uh, writers specifically within the institution. And I said to that, well, I don't work here, so I don't, I don't know what you're talking to me about. Um, and I, I basically, I signed this letter and resigned shortly after because I felt a reprimand was coming, which Jasmine's situation on some level 
seems to have borne out. But the biggest frustration, I think, from the labor perspective is that when you asked what are the guidelines, where are the hard boundaries of what kind of speech is acceptable for a Times contributor and not, there's no written guidelines. People will tell you vague things on the phone, like my editor did, such as, like, well, you can attend street protests and post on social media, but don't make a big thing about it, right? So, like, to me, it's a little bit of a question of, like, are there clear, are there clear rules about this? What types of objectivity are we maintaining to be, like, the requirement for doing this job? And then it, it's, in, it's incumbent upon me to accept or reject those things or not. But as long as it's this vague triangulation about, like, well, you know, there's kind of just a vibe about what types of speech are okay. Like, I just, as someone that's, like, trying to do intellectually honest work and uh, be in pursuit of truth in some sense, whether or not a totally objective position is possible, I think it's, it's really important, especially as the industry becomes more and more uh, centered on people who do this kind of 1099 contingent work to have clear, like, clear guidelines for what is expected of journalists who are doing this work. Jamie, um, I was wondering your response. And if you were part of the protests last week, it was just after Jasmine had resigned. Um, the large group of media workers who led a march to The New York Times and later occupied the paper's building entrance for over an hour, denouncing what demonstrators called biased reporting toward Israel. Protesters read the names at the time of at least 36 journalists. It's now over 30, 40 journalists killed. Um, by Israeli fire in Gaza. Um, it's 40 altogether, also involving Lebanon. Um, and distributed mock newspapers with the words, the New York Crimes, accusing the Times with complicity in laundering genocide. Um, uh, also, people like Nan Rubin announced that—rather, uh, uh, um, Nan Golden announced that she would, uh, she would end her project, her collaboration with The New York Times, the well-known artist. Jamie, your thoughts? Yeah, so I did attend the uh, outside march in support of the action that was led by Writers Against the War on Gaza, which is the group that produced the letter that Jasmine and I both signed. Um, I, I don't necessarily think my anger is focused specifically on the New York Times, because, like, while they are indicative of a broader problem with the industry, I think this is, like, an industry-wide question, right? So, like, the Times, as, like, one of the, the quote-unquote paper of record, becomes the center of this conversation. But, like, it's by no means exclusive to the Times. And, like, my particular employment situation there really is, like, not that critical when we think about the broader issue, right? Um, to me, the the media questions around it, right, it's like— Critical thinking skills that journalists would be expected to apply to any other situation, right? And, and cover stuff like providing historical context or thinking about, like, the semantics of, like, power within certain language that's chosen. Even things like the Times naming their, their vertical the Israel-Hamas war versus perhaps, like, the Israel-Palestine war or the Israel-Gaza war, right? There are all these choices that are being made. Things like I was really, really disheartened to see the CNN embed with the IDF, right? Like, there are all these ideas about, like, journalistic objectivity, but then when it actually comes down to the level of, like, news being produced, uh, things we would expect of news coverage on any other topic are totally being forgotten here. And I just think, like, any attempts to silence journalists pushback to this seems to me to be, like, in some way an endorsement of Israel's actions, right? So, like, uh, all I think that... Uh, I, I, beyond a ceasefire, which is my, my personal demand, as far as an industry demand, all I'm asking for is... Fair, fair, reasonable coverage that you would expect of any other topic. 
Well, I want to thank you both for being with us in this first broadcast interview you've done. Jamie Lauren Kalis uh, resigned from The New York Times magazine, as did Jasmine Hughes. He, um, Jamie Lauren Kalis is a contributor, um, and, ja and Jasmine is, was a staff writer for The New York Times magazine. Um, next up, we look at how the United States and other nations are helping to arm Israel. Uh, in its assault on Gaza. We'll speak with Anthony Lowenstein, author of The Palestine Laboratory. Stay with us. The Irish Gaelic song An Philistine by Sharon Shannon. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The weapons Israel is using in its assault on Gaza have become a major focus of protests calling for a ceasefire. In the United Kingdom Friday, hundreds of demonstrators blockaded the country's biggest weapons manufacturer, BAE Systems, to call for the end of weapons sales to Israel. This comes as union members in Belgium and Spain have refused to handle shipments of military material over the war in Gaza. Here in the U.S., nine peace activists were arrested Monday for blockading entrances to the engineering complex of General Dynamics in Connecticut, where nuclear submarines are designed, and said, quote, We're seeking to make connections between General Dynamics' preparation for nuclear war here in New London and Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza, they said. Meanwhile, in Australia, hundreds of pro-Palestine protesters block the Israeli Zim shipping line from docking at Sydney's port, Botany, uh, saying it is a major shipper of arms to Israeli forces currently waging war on Gaza. Over the weekend, hundreds of thousands of pro-Palestine protesters took to the streets of Sydney, of Melbourne, of Brisbane, to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Australia's reportedly approved over 50 military export permits to Israel this year alone, and three Palestinian human rights organizations in Australia and the U.K. have filed legal challenges to suspend them. For more, we're joined in Sydney, Australia, by Anthony Lowenstein, an independent journalist who's investigated how Israeli weaponry and surveillance technology is used on Palestinians and exported around the world. His most recent book, published in May, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. He was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Anthony Lowenstein. Um, if you can start off by uh, talking about this issue of weapons and also speak um, uh, from your background as a Jewish reporter. Thanks so much for having me, Amy and Juan. Look, what's been happening since October 7 with the arms to Israel really in some ways fits into a long pattern. You've had since that day the U.S., U.K., Germany, Australia— 
Netherlands, many other countries rush ship huge amounts of weapons to Israel, including, I might add, F-35, which is a fighter jet that Israel's been using. And there's a global supply chain and many countries, including Australia, the US and Netherlands, are sending parts to Israel, which almost certainly are being used over Gaza as we speak. In fact, the German uh, um, arms exports to Israel have expanded 10 times in the last month since 2022, a massive increase. And I think what you see really is a growing global awareness of the connection between Israeli militarism and the arms industry. Now, it might be obvious to many on the left that that's been the case for many, many years, long before October 7. But I think you see in some ways a growing public awareness and anger. The longer this conflict is going on, the death toll is so staggering. The amount of civilians being killed is so overwhelming. The footage that we're all seeing and understanding the connection between how that's happening and who's actually funding and supporting that. Yes, obviously, Israel's the one that's actually doing the, the killing in Gaza, but there's a deep global connection to many Western partners that are funding, backing and arming it. And I think ultimately, finally, I'd say that there is a growing Jewish awareness of this. Now, obviously, I speak as someone who's Jewish. I'm Australian, but also a German citizen. And I think it's clear that for a long time there's been Jewish criticism of Israel, that's for sure. But in the last years, particularly since the Gaza war in 2014, and especially this year, the devastation we've seen since the horrific Hamas attack on October 7, growing Jewish voices, not just in relation to protesting Israeli actions, but the arms that many Western countries are sending to Israel to fight its brutal war. Uh, Anthony, could you talk about how uh, Israel and especially Gaza have become a laboratory for uh, for surveillance states? Uh, you write, for instance, that uh, the system is most extreme in the city of Hebron, where facial recognition and numerous cameras are used to monitor Palestinians, including at times in their homes, uh, instead of the extreme Jewish settlers uh, who are routinely attacking them. You talk about that and also what's happening and what's been happening in Gaza even before the war. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot in my book, one in the Palestine Laboratory, is how in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem for years, Israel regularly tests and trials new weapons. That could be drones, spyware, as you say, fresh recognition technology. And Gaza for years was framed as the ultimate laboratory. There were 2.3 million Palestinians. There was a fence that essentially was constructed around the entire perimeter. It was almost impossible to break out. Of course, we saw that didn't and not a reality on October 7, which I'll get to in a minute. But ultimately, there were huge amounts of technologies. But one I think you find after October 7, and I've heard this both from sources that I've been speaking to, but also some decent reporting in the last month is, this in some ways was a tech lack of imagination, a tech failure, a tech lack of imagination, a tech arrogance. And what I mean by that is that Israel had believed arrogantly for years that it was possible to cage 2.3 million people indefinitely and they would never break out and resist that. And even to the point where in the year before the attack, I've been hearing reports that Israel and the NSA, the US's key spy agency, stopped listening into Hamas walkie-talkies, for example, just didn't listen to it in the belief they didn't need to, that certain Jewish communities near the Gaza border were giving information they were hearing 
back to Israeli military intelligence, which the government ignored. Now, on the one hand, it was an intelligence catastrophe, not unlike 9-11 in the US, but it was more than that. It was a political failure, Netanyahu being the prime minister, the obvious one. And I think what it shows is, as I talk about in the book extensively, that you can have all the repressive technology you want in the world. You can repress people, surveil them, monitor their homes, document them in any way possible. And Israel is tragically a global leader in this, which they then export the huge amounts of nations around the world. But ultimately, it won't work. It can work in inverted commas for a certain amount of time, and you can convince other countries that it does work. But when something like October 7 happens, we see the complete failure. Having said that, and this is an important caveat to this, you know, ultimately, I think this will have no impact on Israel's arms industry. In fact, I think it's actually going to help. And let me briefly explain what I mean by that. The, the failure on October 7 was clear, but I think many countries will want to support Israel now moving forward. After the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Israeli arms sales have soared, massively soared. And I think what you'll find is that like after 9-11, the US defense industry massively benefited from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Israel is already, as we speak, as I've been documenting in the last month, live testing new weapons in Gaza, showing it on social media, how they're working. That's not just for a domestic and international public, but also other countries that might want to buy those weapons in months and years ahead. And I wanted to ask you, in terms of this, this uh, uh, countries uh, selling weapons uh, to Israel, uh, you talk about the difficulty in Australia and even finding out what the government is doing in terms of its exporting of arms to Israel. You know, the American arms industry is hardly one you would call moral, but at least at times there's a degree of transparency, although I do note that after um, the Biden administration has sent huge amounts of weapons to Ukraine, there was a degree of listing what weapons were being sold, whereas with Israel in the last month, there's been barely any acknowledgement of what America actually is selling to Israel, though we have certain suspicions. Australia is an interesting case. Australia is a middle power. We are very, very madly pro-Israel, sadly, as a government. And for years and years, the Australian arms industry has been boosted by both sides of politics in my country. They've wanted to make it one of the top 10 or 20 arms exporters in the world, which it now is. It sold weapons to Saudi Arabia that they used in their genocidal war against Yemen. And in the last years, a number of activists, lawyers and journalists, including me, have tried to find out some details about what exactly is going on with the Australian uh, arms industry to Israel. And I should say that I'm one of the co-founders of Declassified Australia, a news organisation, and recently we published this amazing report which detailed how Pine Gap, which is a key US intelligence asset in the centre of Australia, is being used by the Americans to provide real-time intelligence to the Israelis in their war against Gaza. Now, Pine Gap has been used for decades in US war making in Iraq and Afghanistan, but the idea that you have a key American intelligence asset in the centre of Australia giving information to Israel, which directly implicates Australian officials and government in what Israel is doing in Gaza. And this report went viral a few weeks ago, which I think it explains how there's so much concern that the US's presence in Australia and therefore assisting Israel in its war against Gaza from Australian shores should something that concern all of us deeply. 
Anthony Lowenstein, uh, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Anthony Lowenstein thank is an you. independent journalist who's investigated how Israeli weaponry and surveillance technology is used on Palestinians and exported around the world. Also a filmmaker and the author of many books, including his most recent, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. He was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. We'll also link to your latest piece in The New Internationalist, headlined How Palestine Became Israel's Spyware Testbed. That does it for our show. Belated happy birthday to Ishmael Daro. Uh, Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.